0: Welcome to the Wheel of Sport, home of the greatest sports stories ever told. My name's Ian McNally, and with me is... Matt Lavery, Matt Lavery! How's it going, Ian? Hi, Matt. Very well. We'll get the wheel spinning. Off he goes. We're recording in a very festive period of the year. Well, it's evergreen, Ian.
1: (laughs) Well, it's Christmas in our, you know, today for us. For our listener, it might be who knows what. And the topic for this episode is got two tribes ian what could be more
0: festive than that two tribes well actually that is festive there's been a lot of religious battles over the years so involving more than two tribes but uh we we there might be a little sprinkling of that in this story matt uh i'm gonna take you all the way back to 1915 the australian sport of Australian rules football the Victorian Football League one of the oldest codes in the world. So the VFL predates the AFL which which
1: listener might might know better today.
0: That's right what um, is the AFL is a national competition in Australia Australian Football League whereas the VFL is in the state of Victoria uh, with Melbourne being the largest city but also some very suburban. Clubs that still exist today, Matt, some of them did go to the wall or have merged since, you know, as things morphed into the AFL. But going right back to 1915, the VFL is in its relative infancy. It's been going a couple of decades and it's certainly a very, very popular sport, particularly within the working class suburbs of Melbourne. Melbourne at the time is a pretty wealthy city, but really the powerhouse of Melbourne is these inner city suburbs such as Carlton, which is now a a very luxurious suburb, but it wasn't back in the day. And same with Collingwood as well, full of factories. There were 30 breweries in Collingwood at that time, back in 1915. Nice. It was a very buzzing working class and Uh, dare I say, quite a Catholic area as well. Richmond was similar as well. But this synergy between the passion for VFL and uh, the working class and also a slight religious element, uh, which doesn't exist today, probably does exist for some, but not certainly overtly. Uh, It's certainly nothing like the old firm or anything like that. But we have this massive rivalry between Carlton and Collingwood, which exist in the AFL today. Any fans of Carlton or Collingwood know that when they face each other, that is one of the biggest games of the season. Regardless of how they're doing, they just want to win that game. Mm. And it's always one of the most highly attended games in the season as well, such as the Passion. But a lot of modern rivalries are fairly superficial or you know feel a bit confected and not a bit phony but Matt I'm gonna go back to 1915 in fact Carlton and Collingwood because they were quite similar they got along really well with each other they helped each other out they looked after each other they had a lot of synergy but something happens in the 1910 season So 1910, Carlton got in the final uh, that year. But in the run-up to getting to the final, on a Saturday afternoon, just before they're about to play, the coach of Carlton Football Club, Fred Pompey Elliott, he dropped three players, very mysteriously just dropped three of his key players of his own team before the game. And this is before the final or just before a random game? In the run-up to the final. So this was very strange, Matt, and caused a bit of a stir in football circles and the wider media because the reason that he had dropped those three players is because he had had a tip-off to sit in a particular restaurant at a particular time and eavesdrop on a conversation that was taking place. Oh wow! And the conversation that was taking place was with three of his players. Oh, so he he spied on them in the restaurant. He spied on them, and they were organising to take a bribe, really, to throw the game. But in match rigging, <laughs> match fixing, nineteen ten. Wow, <laughs> this is so. And what was the reason? Was it, was it for betting purposes, presumably, was it? I'm sure there might have been lots of unofficial bookies, uh, street bookies happening. Maybe it was something to do with that. Mm. Maybe it was down to, you know, the other team just wanting to progress. Maybe a mixture of those things. But certainly it had dragged Carlton's name through the mud. When Carlton got to the final, they faced... Collingwood, their near neighbours. As I said Matt, they, they, previously they were friendly clubs, these two, Carlton and Collingwood, but the event in this game just triggered. This was the very start of this long-lasting rivalry in this game. the The conduct in the final from the teams was appalling. As the game wore on, the conduct by the players got worse and worse, to the point that just a massive brawl broke out in the later part of the game. There's players out cold on the on the field. The club officials get drawn into it. Oh my goodness! Then the supporters, both from both sides, you know, let's say very working class, rough and ready supporters, jump the fence get involved in this fight. So would this have been at the MCG? Was that, Did that exist in
1: 1915?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it was at the MCG. Yeah, and once you got into the final stage, all the finals games took place at the MCG. But they did have localised grounds, so uh, Princes Park for Carlton and uh, Victoria Park for Collingwood. But this was at the MCG. <laughs>
1: and... So there would have been a, a lot of fans there then in, you know, to get involved with the, the ruckus.
0: Yeah, normally at this stage, there's probably... Thirty to forty thousand fans uh, who would attend. Still a lot. Yeah, now it's over a hundred thousand, but certainly that's a lot of people in one space. Particularly when you know crowd control, you know, wasn't what it is now. And the police, the police actually got involved on the field as well. It's so remarkable. Police <laughs> yeah. get involved, dive in as well. well. What I like is the idea.
1: You know, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would have seen. An AFL game for any who haven't, even now, it's a very rough looking game. You know these guys are, you know, physical specimens who absolutely bash each other about. And what I always admire is the fact that they all complain that the game's gone soft. <laughs> it's not as rough as it was twenty or thirty years ago. You know, oh, that's not a tackle. This is a tackle. Um, and yeah, the the idea that AFL is somehow you know, not as tough as it used to be. Uh, maybe when it was VFL and was a bit more amateur, always interests me. So if if this is an exceptionally rough version of that game, then that is that is even more
0: interesting. When it's the other supporters, the police, and club officials all doing that, <laughs> and your teammates lying Sparko on the deck, it's like this is terrifying. But I suppose that you know, it's a bit of a different. Kettle of fish in 1910, uh, but this isn't forgotten. So 1910 happens. This massive uh, brawl, this massive fight that happens in this game. Collingwood won. Carlton really made a, a comeback in the final quarter, but just not enough to uh, to peg them back. So. Yeah, Too busy scrapping. Too too busy fighting. I mean, maybe that was a bit of a, a ploy by Collingwood because they could see Carlton come back in the game and they thought, well, we just slam this. But obviously, these are, <laughs> these are young men full of vim and vigour and a love for footy. And I think, you know, even the players would have been from that suburb, you know, so there would have been yeah. this kind of parochial pride as well and knowing you'd live in that suburb as well so knowing that you've got to go back and show your face after you know a a defeat or uh heaven for fend that you uh took some bribes as well (laughs) that would be a tasty one but carlton they're a really good club very well run organized george chalice signs for them in 1912 who is one of the most promising young players he comes over from tasmania and he becomes one of the best players in the VFL. He epitomizes Carlton's struggle against Collingwood, really, because he's a brilliant player. But the first game he faces Collingwood, Carlton lose by one point.
1: <laughs> Which is so close in in Australian rules football. One point is pretty unheard of, right? it's unusual
0: it's remarkably close because at vfl you score six points for a goal one point for a behind uh so you can imagine how they multiply and accumulate uh being one point in it is so close and then the year after less than a goal in it as well like four points or something it was and then in 1914 The game between uh, Collingwood and Carlton ended in a draw. Oh, Now that is is really rare. (laughs) It's extraordinarily rare uh, for the game to end in a draw. Just fascinating that every time these two teams meet over the course of those years, it's extraordinarily close. It's it's something quite spooky about it. And by the time 1915 rolls around, we've obviously got the issue of a world war happening in Europe. Australia, by virtue of them being in the Commonwealth, are drawn into this war. A lot of young men are being recruited to be part of this war. In 1915, nobody had expected the war to have gone for as long as it is. So in March of 1915... They put it to a vote whether they should suspend the VFL season. They vote against uh, suspending the season, and it's quite amusing to me that all pretty much all the clubs who voted to suspend the season were the worst performers. Yes, <laughs> but the, t- the top clubs they were like, no, no, we'll, we'll carry changed. on. <laughs>
1: Yeah, nothing's changed in that regard, Ian.
0: <laughs> One interesting thing, Matt, is that St. Kilda, they play in red, white, and black, as you know. But My boys. In 1915, they reverted to play in red, white, and yellow because red, white, and black were the colours of Germany, and-, mm. <laughs> and they transferred to the colours of Belgium because they were an ally. That's interesting. Can you, can you imagine just changing remote,
1: your like, <laughs> just mad? But yeah. Okay.
0: Change, why not changing your sports teams' colours on the virtue pure coincidence that it matches up with an enemy ten thousand miles away? Just so so curious. But you can. It gives you an insight into kind of the sensitivities uh, of the time, and obviously, you know, this young country you know australia at this point is is only 14 years old but in this context 1915 season it goes ahead there's nine teams in the league where each team plays 16 games and they get two byes now collingwood are flying and they win the first six rounds of the season they meet carlton in round 7 but they lose to Carlton, 75 to 73 points. Wow, so Carlton finally getting that win. And then Collingwood, they don't worry about it. They win every game until they meet Carlton in round 16. And they lose by one point, 60 oh.
1: to, 62 to 63. Wow, so Carlton are really sort of ruined their perfect season then, is that right? Yeah, they won every game bar their two,
0: two Carlton matches. Exactly. Collingwood won every game that year except for the two defeats to Carlton. And goodness, it's important to note as well that in that round 16 game, the press, like, they described this, one of them described it as two hours of glorious forgetfulness of war and its horrors. Despite the fact that they've had changes of personnel, it's unnerving how close these games finish so collingwood end up winning the ending up on the top of the ladder that year by two points carlton in second they end up playing each other in the final
1: yeah so this is the other thing about the australian rules because in some sports like premier league football if you finish on top of the ladder or top of the league that's it it's over but in australia It doesn't really matter about where you finish in the ladder. It's about what happens in the final. So that the top teams then go into sort of a a playoff final to to establish who the real winner is.
0: Yeah, they had a system called the Argus system, which I won't go into right now. But it's basically like a ranking system that that decides who you play and and the knockout uh, phase. Because it isn't necessarily a straight knockout. Ultimately, they end up meeting each other in the final. 1915, Collingwood playing Carlton. Now a lot of psychology already here Matt cuz imagine if you're Collingwood and you've l- only lost two games that season both but so close. You lost to Collingwood. Yeah. To Carlton. But there's heaps of very interesting things that happened before this grand final because the war is raging on. You've got George Chalice, Carlton's best player. He's actually volunteered to fight but got turned down for a medical because he had one toe that curled over the other wow. and go and like the people saying I'd I'd like to have a whole like regiment full of George chalice he's one of the most yeah. exciting strong quickest players in the in a, a VFL um, and then another player Jim Jackson he enlisted to fight eventually George chalice was allowed to sign up and enlist. Jim Jackson and Carlton's captain as well, Alfie Bond, he also signed up. This isn't big in itself until you hear the rest of this story because you've got Collingwood, they have a player called Paddy Rowan and also Doc Seddin who both enlisted uh, to fight. And Paddy and Doc were both sent to the military training camp just over 100 kilometers outside of melbourne but they need to come back for the games but there's been a couple of games where paddy and doc they actually haven't turned up like a fortnight before the final they just didn't show news got back that the reason they didn't show is because there'd been a meningitis outbreak in the military camp and that they weren't allowed to to travel for fear of bringing meningitis into the city for which team sorry uh, for, so that for was, yeah, that was for Collingwood. Yeah. So yeah. you can see how it's becoming problematic. And as the grand final is getting closer, Collingwood have three of their key players, uh, Jim Jackson, Seddon and Rowan, all at military training camp. If they can't get leave for one reason or another, they can't play in the final and surely they won't be able to win the grand final. The morning of the final, Jim Jackson... He is injured, so he is out of the picture anyway. But you've got Rowan and Sedin now. I don't know why this was the case, Matt. But Paddy Rowan called himself Paddy Rowan when he was playing VFL, but his actual name <laughs> was his actual name was Percy Rowe. Okay, don't know why. Maybe it's a bit of a stage name or something. But when he, when he enlisted, obviously, he probably felt like he should use his real name. <laughs> probably. So, so, Roe and Seddin are at military camp. They are fighting fit. They cannot wait to play in this final to right the wrong. They've finished top of the ladder. They want to beat Carlton, set the record straight. They are pumped up for this final, but they're at military training camp. They are denied leave on the morning of the grand final. And because they're denied leave, they are also instructed by the military personnel that they're going to go for a 12-mile march that morning. So they set set off on that march. Collingwood's club secretary gets wind of the fact that they haven't got leave and drives to (laughs) Seymour. to the military camp gets the lads in the car and drives to the mcg nice (laughs) now bear in mind that journey from seymour in a car in 1915 (laughs) yeah that wouldn't be the best preparation (laughs) not be the best preparation considering you've been on a 12 mile march probably probably carrying a you know weight as well that morning So these lads are jaded. Now, news is getting around, and the theory is is that this is a stitch-up. There's a Carlton insider somewhere in the military. Denied them leave, made them go out on a 12-mile march, allowed them reprieve just so so it doesn't look like bias, let them go into the uh, MCG... This game kicks off. Collingwood, like, they're behind after the first quarter, almost predictably. They're 16 points behind by halftime. But something happens at halftime, Matt, and they come out absolutely firing. Collingwood were just superb. The momentum was so strong. The fans were raucous and just loving this resurgence. They managed to get into the lead. From that deficit from half time. And then something happened which muddied the waters again. The top goal kicker for Carlton, Herb Burley, he leapt to catch the ball. He's flying through the air. He grabs the ball and drops the ball. And the umpire gives him the mark anyway and says, You can have a free kick at goal, son. And so the Collingwood fans do not think that that was the case. And the Collingwood players don't think it's the case either. But Herb Burley, sure enough, kicks the ball through the posts. And from that moment, the game's over. Collingwood are completely deflated by that decision. They end up losing the game to Carlton, 78 points to 45. But I think it's also worthwhile just saying a couple of things about where those players in the 1915 grand final ended up because we did talk about some of them uh, enlisting in the uh, armed forces. George Chalice, who was one of the most promising young players, within a month of that final, he went to war as a sergeant uh, based in Egypt. Same with Alf Band and Jackson, Rowe and Seddin. They actually all caught up with each other military training camp in al Kabir, in Egypt. Apparently that was a bit of a, a VFL kind of um, reunion site where they would, you know, yeah. box each other and, like, play VFL and stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's very hard to imagine what the atmosphere in a place like that would be so far away from home. But sadly, Matt, Chalice, George Chalice, he's killed by a shell in L in July of 1916. Uh, in December 1916, Paddy Rowan, or Percy Rowe, He's killed Alfie Bands as well. He had a shell fragment which fractured his skull in 1917. Now, he was pronounced dead, but he did actually survive that. um, But he had really badly damaged vision. And so that meant that that grand final was the last ever game of VFL he ever played. And he was just 22 years old. Herb Burley, who got the mark, but gifted the mark... He was wounded at Polygon Wood, um, so he went from being a top scorer for Carlton to only ever playing three more games. And Doc Seddon, he actually survived the war Seddon and he won the VFL Premiership in 1919 and went on to represent Victoria. Now, a little interesting story here, Matt, that Paddy Rowan, who had another name, Percy Rowe... Percy Rowe, yeah. He and... Doc Seddon had become good friends. But Seddon had been lifelong friends with this girl called Louis. And it was always thought that Seddon and Louis would get together because they'd just been friends since kids and they grew up. But when Percy Rowe came into town from from the country, just swept Louis off her feet. You know, he was a quick mover. He was very suave, suave and determined. Uh, he actually got Louis... Pregnant pretty quickly and got married even more quickly to her. <laughs> and Seddon mm-hmm. was the best man at their wedding. That's nice. But the sad thing was, Matt, is that Percy Rowe was killed in action. And so he never got to see his son that was born. Louis called their son Percy after him. And after Doc Seddon got back from the war, he married Louis and brought up Percy as his own. Percy ended up playing for Collingwood.
1: Oh, some romance there. Despite, the, you know, all those people dying,
0: um, which
1: is obviously less romantic. Yeah, it's it's a
0: really like a, a really story so full of different complications and angles. And, uh, you know, Carlton... From that point they they won five titles in a decade in the lead up to that grand final, and then for the next twenty years after that, they didn't win one so two teams that still despise each other, but I'm really <laughs> interested to know like how many current fans know the basis of the hatreds you know sometimes you just why they hate them. people yeah. just hate because it's like that's just what you do. But I think it's an amazing story. And uh, yeah, Carlton and Collingwood. Great story,
1: Ian. Thank you very much for sharing that one with us. And uh, thank you, listener, for, for downloading The Wheel of Sport again. Uh, you can reach us at The Wheel of Sport on Instagram or Twitter and at thewheelofsport at gmail.com. Please uh, share and, and like and review us. That, all that makes a massive difference. Um, so if you enjoy the show, uh, please, please do that. You know, be kind. Uh, thank you very much, Ian. That was a terrific tale. Always great
0: going down the uh, wheel of history with you. <laughs> yes. See you next time for another one of the greatest sports stories ever told. Thanks ever so much. Take care. Bye bye. Quick thanks to Ross McMullen, the historian whose article provided the inspiration for this episode on the 1915 BFL Grand Final. It was a banger. Thanks, Ross.